came together very, very quickly over about seven weeks in total, utter secrecy. Washington Post sports columnist Sally Jenkins on the surprise deal that is sending shockwaves through the world of golf. For Sunday, June 11th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Susan Davis. Ahead, poet Ebo Barton talks to the podcast 10,000 Things about how their identity has shaped their art. I've brought a lot of Filipino culture to my black identity, but I also think that I've brought a lot of my black identity to my Filipino side. And Trevor Powers of Youth Lagoon on losing his voice, finding God, and putting it all into his new album, Heaven is a Junkyard, inspired by his upbringing in Idaho. Music has this ability of you're able to get things out of your system, for, for myself at least, that I can't any other way. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Even as the fighting heats up on the battlefield, Ukraine and Russia are continuing to exchange prisoners of war. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, Ukraine says nearly 100 members of its military have just been released. Ukraine's presidential office says 95 Ukrainian prisoners of war have been returned home, two of them officers and the rest enlisted men. Some were captured in battles that took place more than a year ago. Ukraine did not say how many Russians were returned, but previous prisoner swaps have been carried out on a one-for-one -one basis or close to it. The prisoner exchange comes as Ukraine launches a major offensive in an attempt to take back the 17 percent of its territory now controlled by Russian troops. Ukraine's military says it's retaken two villages in the southeast, the first gains it's claimed in this operation. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. House Republicans are rushing to defend former President Donald Trump after the Justice Department indicted him for his alleged mishandling of classified documents. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports prosecutors allege that Trump understood his duty to care for the highly sensitive information but chose to ignore it. The National Archives issued a rare statement on Friday, rejecting claims that suggested Trump was allowed to keep classified documents under the Presidential Records Act. In an interview with CNN, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan was quick to defend Trump's handling of the records. There's always a back and forth between administrations when they leave the president and the National Archives. That's just normal, normal course of business, but not this time. They decided once again they were going to go after President Trump. The National Archives had repeatedly asked Trump to turn over the classified material and warned that it would refer the matter to the Justice Department if he didn't comply. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The section of I-95 in Philadelphia collapsed this morning. As NPR's Joe Hernandez reports, the cave-in came after a large gasoline tanker truck caught fire under the highway. Images from the scene showed scorched sections of highway that had collapsed onto the road below. Officials didn't say what caused the fire or if there were any injuries. Traffic was stopped in both directions, and authorities were urging drivers to look for alternate routes around one of the main highways along the East Coast. The Philadelphia Inquirer quoted one city official who estimated the highway could take weeks to repair. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. In tennis, Novak Djokovic beat Casper Ruud to win the French Open final in Paris today. It's his 23rd Grand Slam title, a men's record. Djokovic is the only man with at least three titles from each major, and at 36 years old, he's also the oldest French Open champion. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. A sexual assault reported on Soldiers Field Road in Brighton early this morning is under investigation. A man told state police that as he was walking along the road between 3 and 4 a.m., another man exited a vehicle and physically and sexually assaulted him. Police said the victim fought back and the suspect fled in a possibly gray Honda SUV. A black bear was spotted in Newton earlier today. The mayor's office said the sighting was in the Newton Highlands area near Cold Springs Park. Newton police advised the public to keep a safe distance and not approach the bear. State environmental police were notified. Alex Newell, a native of Lynn, is nominated for a Tony for the actor's performance in the Broadway musical Shocked. Newell could be the first non-binary actor to win the award. The musical is nominated for a total of nine Tonys. The Tony Awards ceremony begins tonight at 8 o'clock in New York City. Police are investigating the theft of crops from the Newton Community Farm. Hundreds of plants, including basil, eggplant, cucumbers, and tomatoes, were taken. The plants were grown for a farm stand, farmer's market, and to donate to a local food pantry. Vermont's maple syrup production this year dropped 20% over a record high amount last year. That's according to statistics from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Vermont produced just over 2 million gallons of syrup this year. The state's agriculture secretary points to a difficult weather season for the drop. Vermont had led the U.S. in the number of maple taps every year since 2016. In sports, the Red Sox wrap up a three-game series in the Bronx tonight against the Yankees. And in the forecast, partly cloudy skies overnight with a low dropping to near 60 degrees, mostly cloudy, near 80 tomorrow, and then scattered thunderstorms Tuesday, low 70s, showers mid to upper 70s on Wednesday. It's 78 degrees in Boston. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Susan Davis. It was just a year ago, you might remember, the first Live Golf event was held, sending shockwaves through the game that shattered long-held structures, partnerships and relationships. For over the past year, it was the PGA, the world's preeminent pro-golf league, versus Live, a Saudi Arabia-funded upstart. Hundreds of millions of dollars have been spent. There have been lawsuits and counter-lawsuits, players leaving one league for the other. You were Live Golf or you were not. But that may be changing. This week, the PGA joined forces with Live Golf. The move would effectively combine the PGA's marketing power, TV contracts, and cultural footprint with Saudi financing. And Saudi's public investment fund governor, Yasser al-Rumayan, would head their board of directors. The move has rocked the world of golf, where even players were kept in the dark, including PGA Tour winner Brendan Todd speaking to Golf Today. Yeah, I just happened to be on the shuttle ride back from the range and opened my email and saw the uh, letter from the commissioner. Safe to say we're all pretty surprised out here. While both organizations had a history of acrimony, the New Yorker Zach Helfen told NPR the move makes sense. The Saudis wanted a golf tour. They wanted power and prestige, and they had a lot of money. 
And the PGA Tour was always happy to take a lot of money, and they had a golf tour to offer, and they had power and prestige to offer. So each side really had what the other wanted. Indeed, PIF Governor Yasser Al-Rumayan and PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan look very cordial together speaking on CNBC. Here's Monahan. You know, there's been a lot of tension in our sport over the last couple of years. But what we're talking about today is coming together to unify the game of golf and to do so under one umbrella. Golf would be better off without them. Terry Strada is one of the deal's strongest critics. She chairs the group 9-11 Families United, which represents thousands of surviving family members of those killed in the September 11, 2001 attacks. Many of those family members are still engaged in long-running litigation to hold the Saudi government responsible for the attacks. We are outraged that they are coming now to America, pouring billions of dollars into one of our time-honored, loved sports of golf, all in an effort to get the American people and the world to forget about how they used to spend their billions of dollars. While the U.S. government concluded that there was no evidence directly linking the Saudi government to 9-11, 15 of the 19 hijackers were Saudi citizens. And Osama bin Laden was a member of one of Saudi Arabia's wealthiest families. Strata calls the deal a blatant attempt at sports washing by the Saudis. It's outrageous that they now can just try cleansing their past, cleansing the blood off of their hands. Though the PGA Live merger has yet to be finalized, it's already faced backlash from players who remain loyal to the tour and from human rights activists who see this as an attempt by the Saudis to use sports to draw attention away from their record of human rights abuses. Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Washington Post. This week, she wrote a rather scathing takedown of the potential PGA Live merger. We brought her into the studio to assess the deal for us, and I started by asking her if she saw the deal coming. Nobody did, including the PGA Tour players. Uh, it's, it came together very, very quickly over about seven weeks in total utter secrecy, which is one of the things that I think is, is making me very suspicious about the uh, legitimacy of this deal. Ultimately, it seems that money did drive the decision here. Your column that you wrote this week alleges as much as you just alluded to. Surely there's a lot of criticism about Saudi Arabia's human rights records. But do you think that this deal will ultimately hurt the image of the PGA? I think they're going to take a tremendous reputational hit. That's already happened. You know, Congress is none too happy. I don't think the Department of Justice is going to be very happy. But I think the the main point is that the PGA Tour players are not happy. It's apparently running about 90 percent against. They are uh, absolutely livid that the commissioner kept them in the dark and conducted secret negotiations. And the deal, frankly, is very, very vague at this point. And it appears that three PGA Tour officials, members of the Board of Policy, may be getting some huge financial rewards out of this. You know, so, yes, the Saudis have a lot of money, but who is that money really going to be benefiting? Do the players here have much power? I, you say they're angry, but is there much in their capability to do anything to stop it or prevent it from happening? Uh, they can do some things to stop it and prevent it from happening. They can start by demanding full disclosures about what the policy board members are getting out of this. What is Commissioner Jay Monahan's new compensation deal uh, by giving so much control to a single Saudi uh, financier, uh, Al Ramayan. He uh, is going to sit as the chair of the board of this new entity if this thing comes off. Uh, why would the PGA Tour cede so much control to a single Saudi financier that they have been fighting with so vehemently for so many months? What happened? 
One of those PGA players, Rory McIlroy, he had been critical of players who had left and taken money from Liv. He said there should be consequences for players who left the PGA. But this is what he said after the deal was announced. Whether you like it or not, the PIF are going to keep spending money in golf. At least the PGA turn like controls how that money is spent. You know, so I'd, you know, if you're thinking about, some, you know, one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds in the world, would you rather have them as a partner or, the, or an enemy? Um, at the end of the day, money talks and you'd rather have them as a partner. The PIF is, of course, referring to Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. Your reaction to McElroy's comments? I think he hasn't closely examined the terms of this deal. And I think that this is what he's being pitched by Jay Monahan, who's trying to mollify him. But if you examine just a little bit that the PGA has released so far, you find out that the PGA is not in control of the funds. The funds will be overseen by uh, the Saudis. They will be sitting as chairman of the board of this new entity, and not only that, but as chairman of a very, very small executive committee. So it's not clear at all that this is a partnership as opposed to having simply sold golf to the Saudi investment fund. A deal like this would have been unthinkable back in 2018 when the Western world was recoiling following the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. U.S. intelligence concluded that murder was ordered by Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But the Saudis have since spent hundreds of millions of dollars in sports. It's this term called sports washing, essentially trying to rehabilitate the nation's image. Is it working? Uh, It is working to a certain extent. The problem is that this deal goes so much farther than any of the other sports washing deals. This seeds an entire international global sport to one Saudi financier who is the direct financial arm of bin Salman, um, a murderer and a torturer uh, and a despot. Do you think it's possible that this sets a precedent for other nations that might want to also attempt sports washing to rehabilitate their images? Is this providing a path for them to do that? Well, Russia certainly has been sports washing like crazy, attempting to, you know, rinse out the foul taste of what Putin's been doing. Uh, You know, that's one reason why they've invested so heavily in sports. I will remark on something, you know, American money fled Russia. Uh, after they attacked Ukraine. So I would, there's a real danger here. This deal is only coming off because there is a very, very small group of power brokers who stand to uh, profit a great deal off this deal with the PGA. I'm not sure this deal gets done in any other league structure. The PGA tour structure probably ought to be seriously examined by the players. Uh, you may see a, a move towards unionization by the players because the fact that this could happen in such secrecy and be carried off by three men, Jay Monahan, Ed Herlihy, and uh, and Jimmy Dunn, all of whom stand to profit hugely from this, that's actually a very unusual setup within sports. Very few athletes are so lacking in power and would be held in such disregard by their uh, supposed government bodies. That was Sally Jenkins, a sports columnist for The Washington Post. Her new book is The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About Work and Life. While many people see Liv as a disruptor for the sport, Doug Greenberg, a writer for the sports news site Front Office Sports, says the Saudi-backed league has actually been good for golf. It's really gotten people talking about the sport, you know, especially at the pro level, but Um, I I think it's also gotten people interested in the recreational level as well. So that's part of it, Um, just just really increasing visibility for the game. Greenberg says player compensation has also improved on the PGA Tour since Liv vied for players to join their league. It kind of forced the PGA Tour's hand and and made them 
start paying the top players more as well. Greenberg acknowledges outrage over Saudi's human rights record, but with a financial arm with hundreds of billions of dollars in assets, ultimately the deal came down to, as it often does, money. I think that's why a lot of people are upset with the top levels of the PGA Tour right now, because, and especially Jay Monahan, the, the commissioner of the tour, because for months he had been, you know, playing the moral angle and had been saying, you know, you can't be accepting Saudi Arabian blood money, like shame on all the players who jumped to live because of them taking that money. And then, you know, in the end, it, it sounds like he ended up taking the money. Still, Greenberg stressed the deal isn't a guarantee. U.S. regulators, you know, U.S. lawmakers are really, really not happy about this, especially with this idea of, of letting Saudi money into American pro sports, which is really the first time that that's happened. So the immediate reality is that this might not even happen. That was writer Doug Greenberg of Fresh Off Sports. NPR reached out to the PGA for comment on the criticisms of the deal with Live Golf. They directed us to an interview Commissioner Jay Monahan gave to the Golf Channel last week. In that interview, he said the following. As we sit here today, you know, I, I think I think it's important to, you know, to reiterate that um, I feel like the move that we've made and, and how we move forward is in the best interest of our sport. Monahan also says he regrets not communicating better with stakeholders in the deal, including the families of the 9-11 victims. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. On 90.9 WBUR, good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio. Glad you're with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Red Fire Farm, a family farm offering organic vegetables, fruit, and cheese, as well as flowers and pick your own. More details at redfirefarm.com. And BU College of Fine Arts. Earn your graduate degree at a tight-knit arts community in a vibrant university bu.edu slash cfa slash grad. Partly cloudy skies overnight with a low near 60 degrees. Mostly cloudy but still up near 80 tomorrow and then scattered thunderstorms Tuesday, temps in the low 70s. 78 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge In sports, the Red Sox wrap up a three-game series in the Bronx tonight against the Yankees. The two teams have split the first two. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Former President Donald Trump is due in a federal courtroom in Miami this week to be arraigned on the 37-count federal indictment that was unsealed last week. On the campaign trail yesterday, a defiant Trump called the charges politically motivated. 
NATO is preparing for its largest air deployment exercise in its history. Germany is hosting the event, which starts tomorrow, and will involve 25 nations, 250 aircraft, and 10,000 participants. The U.S. is sending 2,000 members of the Air National Guard. And in tennis, Novak Djokovic beat Casper Ruud to win the French Open final in Paris today. It's his 23rd Grand Slam title, a men's record, and at 36, he's the oldest French Open champion. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Susan Davis. Every week at this time, we bring you a podcast we love from the NPR Network. Today, we're sharing an excerpt from 10,000 Things, a podcast from member station KUOW. In many Chinese sayings, the phrase 10,000 is used to convey something vast, unfathomable. 10,000 Things, the podcast, highlights ordinary objects that tell us something about the Asian American experience, from a secondhand novel to a blue suit. Shinyi Pai is the podcast host and the civic poet of Seattle. Sometimes the show takes poetic liberties with what counts as an object. In today's excerpt, the object is a name. My name is Ibo Barton. People young and old take new names for many reasons, among them marriage, immigration, and to make a name easier to say for those who can't pronounce it. Ibo Geminilla Graham Barton. You may have a special Burning Man moniker or a name from hiking the Pacific Crest Trail or a name given to you in the military. In my own extended family and culture, many of my female cousins altered their given names by adding or removing a single stroke to the Chinese character depicting their name to mitigate the bad luck that plagued them. This cultural practice is called the rectification of names. By day, I am the director of housing services at a nonprofit called Lavender Rights Project. Other times, a name may just feel like it doesn't fit. And by any other time, I'm a poet and cultural worker in Seattle. Some of us make the choice to make a name change official, shed what doesn't fit. What we are called can become a dead name, something that is retired, as if the identity that went with that name has moved on and beyond to a distant shore. So as a transgender person, I came out in public and my journey has been documented in that way because of how public I've been about all of my identities. Um, So it kind of gives me this privilege to be able to change my name publicly as well with no shame. But I think that a lot of transgender folks don't have that same privilege because we just don't live in a world where it's safe to do that yet. Like, we don't all get to talk about the journey with our name. It's just, it's really cool that I get to talk about it. Ebo Barton never identified with the name that their mother gave to them. My mother names me Carmela Lynn. And, you know, I've always sort of hated this name. I never felt this name was mine. They tried to cut it down to a shorter version and to change it entirely. 
you know, I noticed that a lot of people in my life cut their names down to like the first part of their names. And so I was like, oh, well, I can be Carr. And then in my child brain, I was like, well, that's not interesting enough. I want to be Motorhome. And so I told people to start calling me Motorhome for some reason. And so it was this constant like feeling of this name that just I could not figure out. In choosing our names, our parents come with the best of intentions. Some spend months looking at long lists of baby names. My husband and I went back and forth for months over the symbolism and qualities behind each potential moniker when thinking about how we'd name Baby Pie Bergman. Carmela was, it was the character that one of her favorite Filipino actresses played. And it was a villain. And I think that I've always hated this story. <laughs> it's like, why would you name me after the villain? I also have a birth name, which I don't go by. And my father named me after an American actress and celebrity, Doris Day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that Carmela was this villain. My father gravitated to Doris Day because she was like this, you know, kind of wholesome, mm -hmm. you know, like all American kind of thing. And, yeah. and just, uh, you know, like uh, what they gravitated towards or saw as kind of cultural icons. Yeah. It's really interesting to me. Really interesting. And yeah, like, and I also wonder if it's the character that they played that inspired the name, or is it the homage to the actual person? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Can we ever know? Right, exactly. <laughs> to their family, they were Ella, an abbreviated version of Carmela. I definitely tried to identify with it more, just because it wasn't that full weight of the name. I felt more comfortable in my skin with that version. Hmm. A name is one outward marker of an identity. Other markers of Ebo's identity also telegraph complexity. Ebo is a trans-masculine non-binary person, and they're Filipino and Black. I've brought a lot of Filipino culture to my Black identity, but I also think that I've brought a lot of my Black identity to my Filipino side. Being mixed race isn't easy as a kid. Mixed race children may not always see the world reflected back to them. Ibo struggled with being enough just the way that they were. They were viewed as the Black kid by the Filipino side of their family and as the Filipino kid to the Black side of their family. Ibo felt conscious of having to perform their identity, prove that they belonged to the culture. I remember being in Disneyland and a Filipino family was behind us and me and my sister had braids in our hair. And they were talking in Tagalog about us talking about, you know, when they have hair like that, they don't shower and kept saying all of these terrible, terrible things. And without thinking, because this is also my language, I turned around, I'm eight years old, I turned around, I'm like, that's not true. No, you're not. And it was just a shame that they felt, obviously, and they left the line. But oftentimes, it was not as easy as explaining that to folks. That was definitely a, a scarring moment for all of us, where it was just like, oh, even... You know, like, even if we speak the language, you're still not seeing us for who we are. Ibo's relationship with language became a place for deep liberation. Ibo found creative writing. And through diving into the written and spoken word, they were able to explore their identity, speak it aloud and into being, like an act of magic or conjuring. I was the youngest in my family, very confused about race and ethnicity and identity and gender. And writing, what I discovered was, if I made it sound pretty enough, everyone wanted to listen to me. But literature classes didn't provide the models that Ibo needed to stretch their imagination fully. 
in high school, I wasn't really exposed to a lot of poetry in the classroom except from, you know, old dead white guys that I didn't care about. So I thought that I invented spoken word. <laughs> when I was like 14. And I was like, no, my, my poetry is different. It needs to be said out loud. It was this idea that I did want to share because this poetry had to be read out loud. I just didn't have the resources or access to do that. An identity is created over time. You may think you have a handle on who you are, but that person evolves. As a young person, Ibo connected more with their Asian side through food, language, and family. But that changed when Ibo left home and joined the military, where they were seen as solely Black. You were either Black or white in the Navy, in my opinion. And so that's when I had to figure out like what this was and how it works out. And depending on what environment I'm in, like who am I going to identify with or how will someone perceive my identity? Not having to think about how we're perceived or seen is not a right afforded to everyone. Ibo was aware from a very young age of stereotypes and judgments directed towards them. And these misperceptions showed up everywhere, from the magical kingdom of Disneyland to the U.S. Navy. So I was in the Navy during the Don't Ask, Don't Tell. A lot of parts of my LGBTQ identity were hidden because I just didn't want to deal with whatever was going to come. That particular policy wasn't enforced across the board in the same way and with the same people. And so there was always this fear of, I could be the example that they set. So I'm just not going to engage with that part of my life at all. So it's sort of this removing the titles, removing the mask of all these things that I am so that I can just be serving the country. But while Evo struggled to feel at home in their skin and in their name, they found something else a place to belong. They found the Seattle Poetry Slam scene. Back then it was in the Fremont neighborhood and I showed up and it was this whole magical community of writers that wanted to know what you were doing and how you were doing it and, you know, like conversing with each other about their next work. Were there other poets of color in that group? Yeah, very much so. And they were excited to see me, which was also the the like most excited because usually I feel like in in predominantly white spaces, we become each other's competition. Um, and so I walked in and it was immediately like, who are you? What's your name? Like, hang out with us. A shared love of words evolved into a community of like-minded people, a community that surrounded and supported Ebo and their creative self. At the age of 32, Ebo came out as a non-binary person. They came out during their show called How to Love This Queer Body of Color, an Unapology. This new recognition of self made the name Ella feel even more like a misfit. Um, and so I wanted to change it so badly, but what I did discover during that time was that E sound felt like it was mine. They started intuitively to look up names that started with an E sound. Uh, Ebo immediately showed up. The significance of this name was both mythic and mystical. The Ebo people are an ethnic group in Nigeria or Central West Africa. On St. Simon's Island in Glynn County, Georgia, a group of Igbo captives revolted against their white enslavers at a place that is now known as Igbo's Landing. The myth is that rather than being captive, they killed all their captors and turned into birds and flew back home. The real story is that there was a mass suicide of these folks, but they did kill their captors. But the idea is that they would rather die than be put in captivity. And I thought that was such a powerful story. I took to that story. There was another meaning. 
Ebo discovered the name also means a child born on Tuesday, which they were. Immediately, I was like, well, this is my name. It's calling to me. Ebo had found their name. It was time to start trying it out. I started uh, using my name at Starbucks to be Ebo to see how it felt to answer to it. Like, what does it feel like? Does it still feel like mine? And it totally did. Ebo's confidence grew and they decided to put their new name into the world. How? Facebook, of course. Ebo posted a note to their wall that their friends would see and read. I was uh, really, really, really scared to post it because I remember like typing it and erasing it and then typing it and erasing it. And it was like, hey, um, you used to know me as Ella. Uh, I'm thinking about being Ebo and I want to change my name to, or change my pronouns to they, them pronouns. I would really appreciate it if you would try to do this. The timid post was received well. Friends showed support. My friend Greg was like, cool, Ebo, they, them, got it. But Ebo's family struggled most with accepting and adapting to the change. There was complex grief to work through. There is somewhat of a grief that happens with family members that doesn't happen with other people. I think my mom is still grieving the daughter that she thought she had, right? So I, I, I try my best to be understanding of it, but sometimes it does hurt when the rest of the world has now got it. The resistance felt somewhat surprising. Tagalog, their mom's native language, doesn't actually use gendered pronouns. So the pronoun in Tagalog is sha, and it's not gendered at all. That's like um, Chinese. Yeah, yeah, it's very not gender. Everybody's that, right? Yeah, she heard. <laughs> yeah, they, she heard all they, they yeah. him, and so I think that always confused me of what was the barrier for her to change because I was like, well, in Tagalog, it's there is no gender, so what would be the difference? For Ibo, their chosen name stuck, and there came a time when they were ready to take it public. Ebo curated and directed their first major production, a spoken word showcase that centered poetry on the strength and resiliency of queer people of color. Their show, How to Love This Queer Body of Color, an Unapology, was coming to an end. It was the last night, and it was the biggest audience of the two-week run, and the MC stepped in front of the mic and welcomed Ebo Barton to the stage. And there was this sort of like, do, is, do I go up there now? <laughs> and I did. And it was OK. And no one died. And I didn't burst into flames. And the applause happened, all of the things. And I was like, oh. And so there's this natural transition of like, oh, this is my name now. Well, what do you felt like began to shift or change for you when you started using this name, mm. Evo Barton? Wow. Um, yeah, like that's such an interesting question. Like, I feel like I was granted a piece of confidence that I never got before because I get to be Ebo, <laughs> right? Like I just, and it, so it was just this authentic feeling of like, okay, so now I get to just be myself. Like, what does that mean to be yourself when you've, you haven't been for so long? But definitely I feel like something happened for me on stage, being more comfortable in my skin and not feeling like I was hiding behind anything. That was Ebo Barton on the podcast 10,000 Things from member station KUOW in Seattle. You can find 10,000 Things with Shin Yi Pai on your podcast app. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
The blues poet, storyteller, and activist Aja Monet just released her debut solo album. It's called The Poems Do What They Do, and NPR Music Sheldon Pierce says putting Monet's writing to music elevates her poetic work. Joy is the will. It's the dimple that has endured. Aja Monet's debut, When the Poems Do What They Do, really sort of points to how poetry and music in the Black American tradition are born of the same soul and sort of share a same lineage in that that crossover is super organic. People don't necessarily think of poetry as being music, but this album is like a clear demonstration of its musical power. Hopscotch, double dutch, a fierce gaze, the side eye, the shade, the sass, the snap, the head nod, it's the turn up. She has this really satiny voice that she deploys very effectively, and she has assembled a crack band that knows exactly how to accentuate literally everything that comes out of her mouth. The devil you know. Taxes the air we breathe, privatizes the water. Thinking about the devil you know, it sort of simulates how these songs function in performance. Her poetry, it takes on this almost like spiritual effect and the band is like slowly building over time with her. The song itself is about voting, and even though her writing is charged, it's like never cynical. And the song, as with many others across the album, expounds upon her ideas on solidarity and activism. The most important election is in the heart. A campaign of soul, a candidate measured by their courage in the midst of the enduring strength of love. I think that is like the underlying theme of this record, both in the way that the band moves and the things that she speaks about, the idea that as a collective we can accomplish anything, the way that everybody sort of syncs up and moves as one team just underscores everything that she seems to believe. Do not carry anger that is not yours, says El Brujo. And just like that, the sand is a quiet prayer rug under folded knee. So Ye Maya, this 12-minute epic, the longest song on the album, is really an example of what the album is capable of at its most groovy and most dynamic. Monet's voice is at its most resonant, and Christian Scott's trumpeting reaches a near fever pitch. The poetry and music grow in tandem, eventually erupting into this like sashaying Afro-Latin blues. The ensemble really shines here. The band follows Monet's lead right up to the point where she cedes the floor to them and nearly seven minutes they spend jamming uh, in the aftermath of her last words. But it feels like this big exclamation point on her ideas of setting generations of rage aside and submitting to something grander than herself. That was NPR Music's Sheldon Pierce. Aja Monet's debut album, The Poems Do What They Do, is out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio. Up next at 6, the New Yorker Radio Hour. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny's Acom Fund, a public, nonprofit, charitable organization. The fund listens to those most impacted by inequality and provides the funding and resources they need to create lasting change. More at thelennysacomfund.org. And MGM Music Hall at Fenway, presenting John Oliver live on August 27th. Tickets at mgmfenwaymusichall.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. I-95 in Philadelphia is closed in both directions. Part of the elevated section collapsed today after a gasoline tanker truck caught fire underneath. Pennsylvania's governor says it will take several months to fix the roadway, a major route along the east coast. No injuries have been reported. The State Department says it is aware of Russian state media reports that an American musician is being held in Moscow. Michael Travis Leak is accused of drug trafficking, a charge that carries a sentence of as long as 20 years in prison. And at the weekend box office, Transformers Rise of the Beasts, the seventh entry in the series, took the top spot in its first weekend with $60 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Plymouth Gin Distillery, Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Susan Davis. And now I'm going to hand it over to my friend and colleague, Rachel Martin, for another episode of her series, Enlighten Me. And a warning, this conversation includes mention of suicide. Trevor Powers went to the doctor in October of 2021 for a minor stomachache. And I had brought it up to the doctor. And so he had recommended just this standard over-the-counter thing. He took the medicine and then expected it to clear up in a couple days. The word insane is such an understatement because it it did this thing with my digestive system where it completely flipped everything upside down. It turned my stomach into essentially a geyser of acid where it was coming up as a as a mist. Doctors couldn't figure it out. I had visits with multiple specialists, uh, ER, endoscopy, colonoscopy, I mean, you name it. And it got worse. It was this mist that would coat day in and day out, coated my larynx, pharynx, vocal cords. Trevor lost his voice, which was devastating. He's a musician from Boise, Idaho, who performs under the name Youth Lagoon. His newest album, Heaven is a Junkyard, chronicles this difficult season of his life, a season that gave him a deeper appreciation for home, but also pushed him to his limit. 
At times, he wondered if his primary instrument, his distinct, inquisitive, magical-sounding voice, would ever come back. I had situations like my brother would come to town from Seattle to hang out and we had to, we would do things like go to bookstores and I would have to either text him when I'm standing right by him or hanging out with friends. I had like a notepad that I would write things down on. Wow. Even with my, even with my wife, yes, yeah, she'd come home from work and there were certain days where it was worse than other days, but it was such a long period of time where I would have to depend on writing things down rather than talking. Were you afraid about the long-term consequences for your voice or did you not let <clears throat> yourself go there? Well, I no, I absolutely let myself go there. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally terrified. But that was another thing that I had really, I had so many months of every day felt like a mini death where I would, I would die to myself every single day as in I had to accept this is something that, again, it's out of my control. And I, I, I kept, my brain kept going to the, to the whole thing of the what ifs, the what if I can't get this to stop? What if um, I can't speak again? What if I get throat cancer? What if, you know, you name yeah. it. And that's yeah. the way my brain has always worked. But being in such a deep, dark tunnel, the darkest tunnel by far that I've ever been in, I actually hit this healing breaking point after about four or five months in to where I had nothing to do but accept. And that was something that was new for me is this acceptance. And when when the acceptance happened, that's when I started getting into this other point where it felt very spiritual. I mean, it really turned into something spiritual. My voice is gone and it used to be so strong. The reaper's ready for the harvest. And fear is where my broken heart is In a circus tent all grown up and gone She's climbing the ladder God save the trapeze artist So you reference kind of a spiritual opening that happened in your life. You hear the reference mm -hmm. to God right there. Can you tell mm -hmm. me more about what that, what shape that took for you? I grew up in a very religious household and Idaho in general is a very religious place. And so I, I've always been surrounded by this idea of God. And I, and I would always have said, I believe in God. I would use certain terminology, but I never really knew what that meant because I hadn't had experiences myself that would shape what those words would mean. Yeah. And like so many people, there's so much baggage attached to certain words, certain spiritual words. And even the word God has totally. become such an incredibly loaded word. Um, and for a lot of people, which I, I totally understand, it's a word that, that people steer clear of because of certain trauma that they might've gone through with churches as children or, you know, you name it. Um, but yeah, so for myself, I haven't stepped foot in a church in probably 12 to 15 years. And I had always sensed that there was this other thing there, this greater mystery, this, I could feel it in the wind on walks and see it in the trees and all of that. And this experience taught me that I, I used to think 
God watches people suffer. And this whole thing showed me that God actually suffers with you. And that was such a turning point with the way that I approach my life, the way I approach my music. And also the subject matter of this whole album is centered around that. But then also there's just so many, there's so many more things there. Growing up in a place like Idaho, there's a lot of lyrical content to pull from. Technically, I guess a sixth generation Idahoan. Oh, that's amazing! So, so when did you uh, when did you leave? When did I leave? Well, I left when I was eighteen to go to college. Mm. I still have family there. Both my parents are Idahoans. They've both since passed, but my sister still lives there. My nephew still lives there. Mm. So it's very much still home for me. But I know it's it's sort of a, a complicated culture. Yeah. Like a lot of people, when you're young, you can't wait to get out. And so I thought, okay, when I turn 18, I'm gonna get out of here. I'm gonna right. I'm gonna See move the world. to yeah. yeah, exactly. I was gonna I was gonna move to another country or at least move to another another state. I had all these all these ideas of the kinds of place I would live. And then what had happened was I started going to college just because I felt like that's what you should do and at the same time I started doing music which is obviously what I cared about most and when that started taking off and I was able to start touring home the definition of home changed pretty instantaneously because when I was gone for these extended periods of time coming back to Idaho I I saw it differently everything felt a little bit differently how so um how did it feel different it felt it felt sacred because everything else in my life started feeling so chaotic. Hmm. And to have that comfort, the comfort no longer felt like a cobweb, something that I couldn't get out of. It felt like something where I could leave and then come back. So that's what started changing things. Hmm. Idaho is absolutely gorgeous. It's a stunning place. There's so many beautiful people. There's so many, there's so much here to offer and it's an endless wealth of inspiration for songwriting. But I still have a really complex relationship with it because of, yeah, sometimes people here have a hard time letting others be themselves. And that really gets to me. On a lonely street, children still play, families still eat. Father tells you, Can you explain to me the moment when your voice came back? It, it was it was such a slow. Uh, it came back so slowly that it wasn't. So even even when I had recorded, which I had recorded all the demos at home, my voice was still. I I had so much going on. Where certain days it was way worse than other days. Some days we steered into it. So if there was a certain song that Idaho Alien was one of those songs actually where. My voice was so battered that mm. we had purposely recorded certain certain lyrics, certain lines on days that I was having a hard time singing. Billy come home and Billy's no punk. Daddy come home and daddy's on junk. Videotape of fishermen's knock. Filling the tub and waiting for God. There was sad. 
healing isn't linear. That that right. that was another huge revelation because it wasn't this thing where suddenly I woke up and and I had a voice. I'm still I'm actually still healing. So here I am. Everything went down October 2021. My body's still bouncing back and I'm way further along than I was, but I'm probably at about 90%. And so mm. it's that patience. It's the being in the suffering for for really extended periods of time, that's when it starts becoming a teacher. It's not the, I used to think you go through something hard for a day and you learn something, but that's that's not really where the great teaching comes from. So was Idaho Alien one of the songs that you had written before this happened? Idaho Alien, I, I had a sketch, but I, I didn't really know what it was. I had a couple lines and I had some melodies, but it it wasn't nothing was really too formed yet mm-hmm. and when i started going through this experience it it informed that song and it informed the entire album but especially the chorus of that song because that chorus is written through the lens of a of a narrator and so it's easy to if you're listening to that song it's easy to view it as something that's detached but it was actually because i was struggling so much at the time with my body feeling like a prison. I don't remember how it happened. Blood filled up the clawfoot bath, and I will fear no frontier. I, to be honest with you, I, I really wanted to, I was struggling a lot with not killing myself. And so I had turned to that song as a way to exercise some of those demons. Trevor. That is That's that's really hard. Yeah. So tell me how you pulled yourself out of that mm. emotional and mental darkness. Very slowly and carefully. <laughs> well a lot of it a lot of it is in those kinds of thoughts and mental places aren't totally new for me. I think the extent of where I was at was new, but I've dealt with anxiety and depression my entire life. Mm-hmm. And to people that know me, that's not, you know, it's it's a it's a pretty I'm pretty open about it. But the openness is is what has really saved me. And whether that's being open with therapists or being open with with friends and family, not keeping things private there's a lot of healing power in that because the moment that you try to hide something that's when it really turns into a beast that you can't conquer and that's songwriting for me too that's why songwriting it's such a sacred space because it it has this music has this ability of you're able to get things out of your system for, Mm. for myself at least that i can't any other way and even talking about it it gets to be so difficult because I'll do these things that I can only do or say through music and then trying to talk about it makes yeah. it impossible. Yeah. Or it feels like it's cheapening it in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I'm asking you to talk about it. Oh no, no, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry at all. I do have fun trying to talk about it, but it's all, it also gets frustrating because what happens at the end of interviews or even sometimes talking with friends, if they're asking questions is I get frustrated with myself. I wish so bad that there was an easier way to you know, dissect what it is but there's not
You talked several times about spiritual revelation through losing mm-hmm. your voice and and finding it again. What was your big lesson out of this whole thing? If if there was a lesson in it, what mm. what changed for you that you've been able to apply to the rest of your life as a result of that kind of spiritual revelation? Knowing that I'm not alone. Huh? Yeah. For sure, knowing that I'm not alone. I used to struggle a lot with even when I was around people, I would have this sense of loneliness. And that's gone now. I could be on an island somewhere and and I don't feel alone. It took so many months of suffering and feeling all of this, 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 my body's a prison and I'm trapped, all this stuff. And the more that I started the process of, of acceptance, uh, deeper than that acceptance of who I am as a person and learning to love myself, but then finding ways in this world to actually be alone, find a forest or find Mm. a bedroom where no one's there sit with your thoughts, be, be okay. Not watching TV, be okay. Not doing anything. Be okay. Not talking to anyone. I, I, we, our culture is so distracted and it's, you're telling me to get over your loneliness. You just learn to to be okay with learning to be alone. (laughs) That's totally it. That's how it was for me. Just be alone, just truly be alone. And in that, I don't think that you will be alone. I think that you'll start hitting this point where you, you feel something else inside of you. Trevor, it's been so great to talk with you. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it so much. Trevor Powers, AKA Youth Lagoon. The new album is called Heaven is a Junkyard. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988 or the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. And if you'd like to hear more of Rachel Martin's Enlighten Me series, you can tune in.